The Old Testament reading for today will be Malachi 4. The New Testament reading will be Luke 1, 5 through 25, and that will be the sermon text. Malachi 4, Luke 1, 5 through 25. The title of the sermon this morning is The Time Had Come. And while you turn to these passages, I'd like to take a moment and encourage you, brothers and sisters, to be present in the Lord's Day afternoon service that begins at 12.15. In that service we sing a bit, we preach catechetically, and we pray corporately together. It's a very important time, and so I would encourage you to be there. This is the Lord's Day Sabbath. It is a day for this kind of thing. I would encourage you to be present Today we will be considering Baptist Catechism question 65, which asks, How is the Sabbath to be sanctified? The answer is this. The Sabbath is to be sanctified by holy resting all that day, even from such worldly employments and recreations as are lawful on other days, and spending the whole time in the public and private exercises of God's worship, except so much as it is to be taken up by the works of necessity and mercy a very important uh, doctrinal principle here that I look forward to explaining to you uh, this afternoon. So please come at 12.15. Let's go now to the reading of God's most holy word, Malachi 4. Hear now the word of the Lord. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall, be, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts." Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I command him, commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." Let us go now to Luke chapter 1 and read verses 5 through 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, excuse me, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, 
Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the, t- in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them, and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when He looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This now the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of the word this morning. In Galatians 4.4, Paul the Apostle says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. I would like you to see that the same truth Paul states in his epistle, Luke narrates in his gospel. Paul delivers this truth to us, regarding the birth of the Messiah and the purpose of His coming in the form of doctrine or teaching, Luke delivers the truth to us by telling us the story. The phrase from Galatians that I would like to draw your attention to is, but when the fullness of time had come. It indicates that the birth of Jesus the Messiah was right on time. More than this, it indicates that the birth of Jesus the Messiah was in fulfillment to promises previously made. Jesus the Messiah was born into the world, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, at just the right time, according to the eternal plan of God, and in fulfillment to the promises of God previously made, as recorded in the Old Testament Scriptures. So again I say to you, what Paul says in a direct way, in the form of teaching, Luke teaches, but in the form of narrative. In Luke 1, 5-25, Luke tells us the story of the angelic announcement that came to a man named Zechariah concerning the imminent, miraculous conception and birth of his son, John. John would not be the Christ who was promised beforehand, but he would be the forerunner to Christ. This son of Zechariah would be the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah. 
And you should know that the Old Testament Scriptures do not only contain promises and prophecies concerning the coming Messiah, they also speak of the one who would prepare the way for him. So then, this announcement that came to Zechariah by way of the angel Gabriel was no small thing. It was a clear indication that the fullness of time had come. The very thing that those who were devout and faithful in Israel were looking forward to was about to happen. The Lord's Messiah, the Messiah who was promised to Adam and Eve after their fall into sin, to Abraham in the covenant that God made with him and his descendants, to Israel in the covenant that God made with them through Moses, and to David in the covenant that God made with him was about to arrive. This Messiah, this long ago promised Messiah, was about to be brought into the world. Those who were devout and faithful in Old Covenant Israel believed these promises, and they were very much looking forward to their fulfillment. It would be hard to overstate, therefore, just how amazing and significant this heavenly announcement would have been to those who had faith in these promises. To hear that the forerunner of the Messiah was about to be born would have been the greatest of all announcements to hear, for this meant that the Messiah Himself was at hand. In other words, the fullness of time, as it pertained to the arrival of the promised Redeemer, had come. That was the announcement that came to Zechariah by the mouth of Gabriel the angel. I think it is the main point of the passage that is before us today. As we consider Luke 1, 5-25, in the announcement that came to Zechariah by way of the angel Gabriel, we ought to be struck with a sense of the weightiness of the moment. Something was about to happen that would shake heaven and earth. Something was about to happen that the people of God, those who had faith in the promised Messiah, were waiting for, for generations previous. So let us now consider this narrative in detail to see that this is so. I have five observations to make concerning this narrative this morning. One, notice that the announcement concerning the soon arrival of the Messiah happened first at the temple in Jerusalem. The angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah to deliver this message while he ministered as a priest in the temple, in the holy place, and before the altar of incense. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that we have just finished a study of the book of Exodus. Having that story fresh in our minds will help us greatly in our study of Luke's gospel. For Luke presents Christ to us as a second and greater Moses, and the work of Christ as a second and greater Exodus. And it is also good because in that study, our study through the book of Exodus, we learned all about the tabernacle or temple its design, and its significance. I cannot take the time in this sermon to remind you of all that the tabernacle and later temple signified, but I will remind you of three basic things. One, the tabernacle and later temple was the place where the God of heaven invited His people on earth to come and meet with Him and to worship Him under the old Mosaic covenant. The tabernacle and temple, therefore, functioned as a kind of special contact point between heaven and earth in those days. Two, the tabernacle and temple, along with all of the sacrifices that were offered there, 
provided cleansing for the priests and the people in an earthly and temporary way, while also pointing forward to the Christ who would one day atone for sin, really and truly and eternally, in fulfillment to the promises of God previously made. That is to say, promises were made to Adam and to Abraham. And in the days of Moses, those promises were picked up and maintained, but the law of Moses was added, and some of those laws had to do with this tabernacle or temple. And the tabernacle and temple pointed forward to someone and something greater, namely Christ, His atoning sacrifice, and the new creation temple, which He would earn through His obedience unto death. Three, the tabernacle and temple were constructed in such a way to symbolize one's approach to God who is enthroned in heaven. To journey to the temple was to ascend the mountain of the Lord. Entering the courtyard, the people were reminded of their sojourning on earth by the mountain-like altar upon which animal sacrifices were offered up and the ocean-like sea in which the priests would be consecrated and daily cleansed. The holy place symbolized in part the heavens above And the most holy place symbolized the heaven of heavens, that is to say the very throne room of God in heaven, where He manifests His glory even now before the elect angels. But as you know, a curtain divided the holy place from the most holy place. The high priest would pass through the curtain and enter the most holy place once a year, and not without animal blood to atone for his own sin and the sins of the people. The curtain communicated, on the one hand, that the way into the presence of God had not yet been opened up wide. On the other hand, when the priest entered once a year, it communicated that the way into God's presence was not closed off entirely. No, it would be opened up wide, for God had promised to open the way to God up wide. And we know that it was opened up by Jesus Christ, our great high priest and mediator of the new covenant, through the offering up of Himself before God, For the sins of many. The priests of Israel, the common ones, were not able to enter the most holy place, but they ministered daily in the holy place. And one of the things they did was burn incense on the altar of incense at the hour of prayer, morning and evening. The incense would rise from the altar, pass through the curtain, and enter the most holy place, signifying that our prayers do in fact reach God. And all things considered, what do you think the priests were to pray for as they offered up incense and prayers on behalf of the people at that altar morning and evening? One of the things they must have prayed for was the consolation of Israel through the arrival of the Messiah who was promised to them long before. If these priests were faithful, and many of them were while many were not, If these priests were faithful, this would have been the primary thing that they prayed for at the altar of incense. They would have prayed for the consolation of Israel, the arrival of the promised Messiah. It is perfectly fitting, therefore, in fact, I think it is marvelously beautiful and glorious, that the first announcement concerning the soon arrival of the Messiah happened at the temple in Jerusalem, more specifically The announcement came to Zechariah the priest as he ministered at the altar of incense, which was placed just in front of that ominous curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. 
It is not hard to imagine generations of faithful priests ministering there at that altar, praying for the consolation of Israel through the arrival of the Messiah, as if knocking on the door of heaven and saying, Open wide the way, O Lord. Open wide the way into your presence for Israel and for the nations in fulfillment of your promises. The faithful priests of Israel would have been praying in this way. They would have prayed for the consolation of Israel and for the gospel of the kingdom to go to all nations in fulfillment of promises previously made, as if knocking on the very door of heaven. Brothers and sisters, we must read the New Testament Scriptures being mindful of the Old Testament Scriptures. The more we know and understand the Old Testament Scriptures, the more we will be able to appreciate the true meaning of the New. When Luke tells us that the announcement concerning the soon arrival of the Messiah was delivered first to a priest ministering in the temple at the altar of incense, it is far more than just a fact. It is a fact that is filled with significance and meaning. Uh, The significance of this fact is that the one who was long ago promised, the one who was signified by the temple, was about to arrive. The one whom those who were faithful in Israel longed for and prayed for was about to come. The one who would open wide the way into the presence of God through His broken body and shed blood was at hand. The location at which this announcement was made was perfectly fitting and it was filled with symbolism. And I say, may the Lord give us understanding concerning these things. 2. Notice that the announcement concerning the soon arrival of the Messiah came first to a righteous priest. And this too was most fitting. Now it is true that many of the priests and religious elite in Israel did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Many had a dead and lifeless form of religion. Many did not understand the Old Testament Scriptures truly, though they claimed to be experts of these Scriptures. Many did not believe in the promises of God concerning Jesus the Messiah. The Gospels make much of this theme. We see that many of the religious leaders in Old Covenant Israel were hard in heart and filled with unbelief concerning Jesus the Messiah. But notice this, some did believe. There were some who were righteous, they were faithful, they were eagerly awaiting the consolation of Israel in the arrival of the Lord's Messiah. And Zechariah the priest, along with his wife Elizabeth, were among these. Our text says that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. When the text says that they were righteous, this does not mean that they were sinless, for no one is is sinless except one, Christ Jesus the Lord. It means instead that they were made righteous through faith in the promised Messiah, just as Abraham was. They possessed the faith of Abraham, and we know that Abraham himself was justified by faith alone, and so too were these. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous because they had the faith in Abraham. They believed in the promised 
Messiah. And because they were made righteous through faith, they also walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. This means that they kept God's law. They kept the civil and ceremonial laws of Moses. They strove to keep the moral law of God. When they sinned, which they certainly did, they repented and turned to God by offering up the appropriate sacrifices which were required under the Old Covenant, trusting always, not in their own righteousness, nor in the blood of bulls and goats, as if it could take away sin, but in the promised Messiah of which these things were a sign. The text also tells us that the righteous couple had no child, because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. This would have undoubtedly been a great sorrow to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Children are a blessing from God to all people living in all times and places, but they were especially precious to the Israelites living in those days. Children would take care of their parents in old age, and being childless in those days left people particularly vulnerable. I emphasize the obvious sorrow associated with childlessness to draw your attention to this reality Those who are righteous and faithful, those who walk blamelessly before God, as Zechariah and Elizabeth did, do also suffer. But those who have faith know that God works in and through our sufferings, and so we entrust ourselves to God, even in the midst of the difficulties and sorrows of life, knowing that He cares for us. It is not only always clear to us what the purpose of our sufferings are, but in this moment, for Zechariah and Elizabeth, it became clear. Her barrenness, their childlessness for all those years, did culminate in this marvelous event. It would be Elizabeth who would give birth to the very forerunner of the Messiah who was promised long beforehand. There's one more obvious observation that I would like to make concerning Zechariah and Elizabeth before moving on. They were nobodies when considered in a worldly way. They were likely poor, weak, and vulnerable within that society. And yet the Lord determined to use them mightily. I want you to notice how Luke introduces Zechariah to us, right alongside another individual named Herod, king of Judea. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, of the division of Abijah, the text says. Herod was, Herod was a man of great power and wealth. He was so powerful that days or times were identified by his reign. And yet the Lord's will was not to establish his kingdom through the rich and powerful, but through the weak, vulnerable, and marginalized of society. I draw your attention to this because this theme will run strong throughout Luke's gospel, and it's introduced here at the very beginning. Brothers and sisters, you must know this. God, through Jesus the Messiah, takes the wisdom and ways of this fallen and sin-sick world and turns them on their head. In Christ, the mighty and the proud will be brought low, but the humble and poor in spirit will be lifted up. And I want you to look for this theme as we continue on in our study of the Gospel of Luke. It is often present. It is everywhere in Luke's Gospel. More importantly, I want you to believe in this teaching and live by it. Do you wish to be exalted? 
then be brought low. Bow the knee before God in Christ. Live for His glory, not your own. Do you wish to gain your life? Then lose it by dying to self and living for the good of others and the glory of God. We are to walk humbly before God and man, knowing that in due time God will exalt us. Thirdly, I want you to notice that the announcement concerning the soon arrival of the Messiah was delivered by the angel Gabriel, and this is significant. Angels are ministering spirits. At some point before man's fall into sin on earth, there was a fall or rebellion in the heavenly realm. There was no one angel who was set as covenant head over all the rest, as Adam was over humanity. And so the decision to remain faithful to God or to rebel was individual. The elect angels, as they are called in 1 Timothy 5.21, remained faithful to God. The fallen angels rebelled against Him. Now we do not have the details about this angelic rebellion, and we ought not to speculate or go beyond the things revealed to us. But it seems clear that some of the angels, with Lucifer or Satan in the lead, were filled with discontent regarding their place and wanted to have the very power of God as their own. And so they rebelled, and Satan then brought temptation to the man Adam and through the woman Eve. Notice two things about the angels, the fallen angels and the elect angels. One, no redeemer is provided for the angels. A redeemer has been provided for fallen humanity, but no redeemer is provided for the angels. Two, not all angels fell, but some remained as servants of God and of God's people. There are many angels and demons, but we only know the names of a few of them through the Scriptures. Two of the elect angels that are mentioned by name in the Bible are Michael and Gabriel. They are often mentioned together, and they seem to have been given a special task of ministering to God's covenant people. You may go to Daniel chapters 8 through 10 and 12, Jude 9 and Revelation 12 to hear mention of these angels and the tasks that they have to minister to God's covenant people. So what is the significance of this announcement being delivered by the angel Gabriel? I want you to consider three things. One, the announcement by an angel communicates that what was about to happen on earth, namely the birth of the forerunner to the Messiah and thus the birth of the Messiah, was of heavenly origin and concern. It was the will of God and it was of interest to the elect angels. Two, the announcement by the angel Gabriel suggests that what was about to happen on earth was connected to the war that was and is raging in the spiritual realm of which he was a part. There is a war that rages in the spiritual realm and Gabriel was very much a part of it. I would like you to think about that passage in Daniel 10 where the prophet Daniel receives a vision concerning the future of Israel and it is none other than the angel Gabriel who speaks to him. But notice that Gabriel says something interesting in that encounter. In Daniel 10.13 he says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And a little later he says, 
Do you know why I have come to you? As he speaks to Daniel. But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except, the, except Michael, your prince. Now it is beyond the scope of this sermon to offer a detailed explanation of Daniel 10. The thing that I want for you to notice is that it was Gabriel who appeared to Daniel. And it was Gabriel who delivered a message to him concerning the future of Israel. It was Gabriel who waged war in the spiritual realm with the prince of Persia, that is Israel's enemy. It was him who would wage war in the future with the prince of Greece, Israel's future enemy. These princes that are referred to here in this passage are spiritual beings, fallen angels, who bound the nations in darkness and idolatry. Gabriel and Michael fought against them on behalf of Israel. And so when Gabriel appears to Zechariah, I am saying to you that it is right for us to assume that his announcement has something to do with this war that had been raging in the spiritual and heavenly realm. Indeed, Luke's gospel will make it quite clear that Jesus the Messiah came not only to atone for sins, but to defeat Satan himself to overthrow his kingdom of darkness and to plunder his house. Satan, brothers and sisters, had a special kind of authority over the nations prior to Christ's arrival. He kept the nations in darkness. He kept them bound in their idolatrous ways. But when Christ came, the scriptures are clear, he bound the strong man so as to plunder the strong man's house. He bound the strong man so as to establish his own kingdom and to see it spread, not amongst the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. That is to say, to the very ends of the earth. These nations, like Persia and Greece, who were bound in spiritual darkness prior to the arrival of the Messiah, have been freed in this sense. The strong man has been bound so that his house can now be plundered. And we do know that the gospel of the kingdom has gone to the furthest reaches of the earth. You and I are an example of that very thing. We have faith in Jesus the Messiah. We have faith in Israel's Messiah. We have been grafted in, therefore, through faith in Him. Indeed, we are here today worshiping Yahweh through the Messiah because... This great victory has been won, even in the heavenly and spiritual realm. In Luke's Gospel, we will hear a lot about the casting out of demons. We will hear about the expulsion of Satan from heaven. We will hear about the binding of Satan, so that the Gospel might spread to all nations. Nations, once bound in darkness and deceit. When Gabriel appears, it is right to assume that it has something to do with this spiritual war. The announcement that he brings has something to do with this spiritual war of which he played a critical part prior to the incarnation. Indeed, more angels will appear to others announcing the birth of the Messiah. In Luke 2.13, they are described as a multitude of heavenly hosts. And I will say to you when we come to that passage that this is a description not of an angelic choir, but of an angelic 
army prepared for battle. Three, when we hear that the angel Gabriel made the announcement to Zechariah concerning the soon arrival of the Messiah, we ought to remember the announcements that he made previously as God's messenger to Daniel the prophet. As I have said, Gabriel appeared to Daniel as recorded in the book of Daniel, chapters 8 and 9, also 10. In Daniel 8, things are revealed to Daniel regarding the future of Israel. The details are rather limited, but it is clear that it has to do with the oppression that Israel would endure, first under the Medo-Persian Empire and then under the Greeks. In Daniel 9, we find Daniel praying for his people, Israel, and pleading with the Lord to act to deliver them. It was Gabriel who appeared to him, again, to bring an answer in Daniel 9.20. And it is here that we find that famous prophecy concerning the 70 weeks, which revealed the length of time that would pass before the Lord's anointed one, Messiah, would appear to be cut off and to atone for sins. You may see Daniel 9.26 and compare it also with Isaiah 53.8. Again, it is beyond the scope of this sermon to offer a detailed interpretation of Daniel 9. But it should be clear that when, Dan, when Gabriel appears to deliver this announcement to Zechariah concerning the soon arrival of the Messiah, it has to do with the prophecy that he previously delivered to Daniel. The time of which he spoke previously had come. Daniel saw a vision of the angel Gabriel, and to him it was revealed that a certain amount of time would have to pass before the Lord's Messiah was cut off. And here is Gabriel again, appearing this time to Zechariah in the Lord's temple before the altar of incense. The time had come. The Messiah was about to arrive. This leads now to the fourth point of the sermon. Notice that the announcement concerning the soon arrival of the Messiah was presented as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. I have just said that the very appearance of Gabriel ought to remind us of the prophecies of Daniel 8-10 through 10 and signal that the time for their fulfillment had come. But I want you to notice that Gabriel explicitly quotes Old Testament prophecy too as he delivers this announcement to Zechariah. Beginning in Luke 1.11 we read, And there appeared to him, to Zechariah, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. This is the common reaction of men when they see an angel of the Lord. So glorious are they that men fall to their knees and tremble with fear. Verse 13, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Many assume that Zechariah's prayer was for a child, and perhaps it was, but I cannot help but think that he was praying also, or even exclusively, for the consolation of Israel through the arrival of the Messiah. It may be that Zechariah still wanted to have a child, and maybe that was a prayer of his. The rest of the narrative seems to indicate, perhaps, that he had given up on that, that he was not expecting to have a child in his old age. I think it is better to think that Zechariah's prayer was about the soon arrival was about the arrival of the promised Messiah. Notice that it was announced to him that he would have a son in answer to his prayer, but more specifically, he would have a son who would serve as the forerunner to the Lord's Messiah. I think this was the prayer that was answered, the prayer for the arrival 
of the Lord's anointed one. Verse 14, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. There's a lot that could be said about verses 14 through 17, which I've just read. Here is a thing that must be seen. The birth of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, was announced by Gabriel as the fulfillment to the prophecy of Malachi 4.6, which is the very last verse of the Old Testament, according to the ordering of the books in our English Bible. It was the very last word of prophecy to be delivered before about 400 years of silence. Think about that for a moment. This prophecy that came to the people of Israel through Malachi the prophet was the very last word of prophecy that came to the people of Israel for about 400 years. Stated differently, all of the prophetic activity of the Old Testament culminated in these words from Malachi, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So then, the announcement of the angel Gabriel was very clear. Zechariah and Elizabeth would be the ones to bring Elijah into the world. This was not This was not the old covenant prophet Elijah reincarnated, of course, but the Elijah-like figure of whom Malachi spoke. John the Baptist would go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, the text says. His mission was to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient of the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord A people prepared. Prepared for what? Prepared to receive the Lord's anointed one. Indeed, this is the very thing that John the Baptist did. And it was all in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecy. The announcement that came to Zechariah from the angel Gabriel made it clear that this was about to happen. The fullness of time had come and this was about to happen in fulfillment to prophecies previously given. I have one more observation to make before moving to a conclusion. This observation will be brief. Fifthly, notice that the announcement concerning the soon arrival of the Messiah was accompanied by miraculous events. One, an angel appeared to Zechariah. As we move on in Luke's narrative, we will learn that angels appeared to others too. The heavenly realm is typically hidden from our sight. But at this period in the history of redemption, the heavenly realm was opened up a bit to demonstrate that the Lord was about to work. The promised Messiah was about to come. The kingdom of God was about to break forth and to break into human history with power. Two, Zechariah was made to be mute for a time because of his disbelief. This was a miraculous thing that happened. Yes, this was a form of punishment, But I think we must also see it as a kind of gift. It was a form of punishment because of Zechariah's disbelief. But it was a gift also. It was a powerful sign to Zechariah and to all who knew him 
that the Lord had indeed appeared to him and spoken to him in the temple. And notice how the punishment fits the crime. Zechariah opened his mouth in disbelief, and so the Lord closed his mouth so that he would believe. It is also interesting to note that after Daniel the prophet received a message from the angel Gabriel, the scriptures say that he turned his face toward the ground and he was mute. That is Daniel 10.15. So I think a connection is to be made here between Daniel's experience and Zacharias. Zechariah, like Daniel before him, was made mute, but for different reasons. What Zechariah experienced was miraculous. Three, it was a miracle that Zechariah and Elizabeth would have a child, being advanced in years as they were. We should remember that God gave Abraham and Sarah a son in their old age, after years of barrenness. So then Isaac was born in a miraculous way. Isaac's wife, Rebekah, was barren for a time too. Isaac prayed for her, and she gave birth to twins, Jacob and Esau. That is Genesis 25-21. And now we hear that John the Baptist was born to a father and mother advanced in years who were barren. These are to be regarded as miraculous births, which demonstrate God's power and ability to bring life from death. They were a demonstration that God was at work. The miraculous births in the line of Abraham did also anticipate and prefigure the most miraculous birth of all, namely the virgin birth of Christ. As we move to a conclusion now, let us not forget Luke's stated purpose for writing. Why did he write this gospel? He says in the introduction, It seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke is writing his gospel for this reason, for this purpose, to give certainty to Theophilus concerning the things that he had taught. Of course, he is writing for all of us, that we might have certainty concerning the things we have been taught, concerning Jesus the Messiah and the good news of salvation being available through faith in Him. And I would want you to pay special attention to the way in which Luke went about this task. He is writing so that we might have certainty. Well, how does he go about this task then? I want you to notice that he does state the facts concerning the things that happened, but he presents the facts to us in such a way as to demonstrate beyond a shadow of doubt that John the Baptist was the promised forerunner to the promised Christ. In other words, the story of John the Baptist and therefore the story of Jesus Christ is set squarely in the context of the story contained in the Old Testament Scriptures. So no, this man, John the Baptist, did not simply come onto the scene one day, preaching and teaching things, followed by Jesus, who just came onto the scene one day and began to preach and teach things. No, these men, both of them, were even born in such a way so as to fulfill prophecies, promises, types, and shadows previously revealed. 
the Messiah, and before that his forerunner, came into the world in fulfillment of promises previously made. Christ was the fulfillment of the temple and the priesthood. He was the fulfillment of prophecies revealed to Daniel by the angel Gabriel hundreds of years earlier. He was the fulfillment to prophecies uttered by Malachi. And when the birth of the forerunner to the Messiah was announced, the message was confirmed by miracles. In this way, Luke labors to give Theophilus and all who love God through faith in Christ as he did, certainty concerning the things he had been taught. Brothers and sisters, if you wish to grow in certainty, if you wish to increase in faith and therefore in hope and in love, then one thing you must do is study the Scriptures. For in the Scriptures we find the revelation of God's marvelous plan of redemption. And this marvelous plan of redemption was revealed progressively. And it was revealed with this pattern of promise and fulfillment. And I am saying to you that there is, there is certainty that comes from recognizing this, these things that we consider in the Scriptures, these things that happened in the history of redemption did not just happen. They happened in fulfillment to prophecies and promises previously made. I should remind you right now, in fact, of the great exodus that Israel experienced. They were rescued from Egyptian bondage, led out into the wilderness and toward the promised land. Did that event just happen out of the blue? No, these things were promised before that to Abraham, the forefather of the people of Israel. And so that first exodus took place in fulfillment to promises previously made. And so too, the second exodus accomplished by Christ Jesus. He came in fulfillment to the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. So brothers and sisters, if you wish to grow in certainty, you must study the Scriptures, Old Testament and New. In the Old Testament we find promises, prophecies, types, and shadows concerning the Savior who was to come. In the, New in the New Testament, we learn that Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled these things. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through faith in Him that we utter our Amen to God for His glory. 2 Corinthians 1.20 Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Our Father in Heaven, I pray that You would make us better students of the Bible. I pray that You would help us to see your marvelous plan of redemption as it unfolded throughout history. I pray that we would see John the Baptist and Jesus the Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. That we would believe that indeed Christ was the one, the anointed one, who has come to atone for sins and to earn for us life everlasting. We have faith in Him. Lord, we pray that You would increase our faith. And as our faith increases, I pray that we would be found more and more at peace and filled with joy and with hope in the Holy Spirit. God, help us, we pray. Strengthen our faith so that we might serve you more faithfully. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.